Every year, when January slips into February, Berlin's foremost petri dish of contemporary electronic, digital, and experimental music takes place at the CTM Festival. This year, CTM celebrated its 20th anniversary, exploring the theme of persistence with a jam-packed 10-day program of concerts, club nights, and performances. Fluffy as this theme of persistence may seem, it nonetheless gives a way of reflecting into the artistic practices of the four artists I was so lucky as to talk with. Well, what is persistence? Something that still exists despite of, existing through, with a power or force that is not extinguished. Something that roots back in time to ancient forms of human existence or marks the times and places they were brought up in, that somehow sits waiting in our bones, DNA, dreams, stored in our muscles and memories. But persistence is also something that mutates, transitioning constantly, and always resonating and interfering in our hybrid societies and in our histories. We are hybrids of nationality, culture, gender, and so much more. So how do we work with that? Aurélie Niabikali Liermann is a wonder-born, Belgium-raised, independent radio producer, vocalist, composer, and artist. This year, she was one of the Radiolab winners at CTM, with her new work entitled Sugokuru, a work that's inspired by her very special encounters with her Rwandan grandfather. And just a quick note before we start. I can really recommend using headphones for this one. All right. Okay, here we go. My name is Aurelie Nirabikari Lierman. I'm a musician, a composer, a radio artist, and a vocalist. I used to work for a national radio in Belgium, but at some point made a switch towards music and then started to combine both. Big nose, small nose, long nose, short nose, nose of flying kings with strings on their wings, stirring with a cane, sinking in pain, for death to gain. Politics of the nose. Trying to tell stories through sound, using field recordings as a source of inspiration. And those field recordings can be from here, from the West, but I'm also very, very interested in opening up and listening to sound worlds that are non-Western. Recordings that I've made over the years in East Africa, in Rwanda, Tanzania, and also Uganda.
I like also to work with instruments, musical, acoustic instruments, but I also like the idea that anything can be an instrument, anything can become sound if you like to, and that can be used in a musical way. I just love to use objects, found objects, a bit in the tradition of musique concrète, where you have sounds that have their own rhythm, like this is hard to notate in musical notation. So let's just do it instead of trying to imitate it on the viola or on piano. This has its own qualities and its own way to do it. But then combining it with African sounds and uh, African sound worlds. Politics of the nose. She talked to me. Politics of the nose. She talked to me. Politics of the nose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Politics of the nose. Slower. I'm born in Rwanda. Then I got adopted at the age of two. I was growing up with the idea in Belgium. Okay, I got born in Rwanda, but I'm kind of comfortable with where I'm right now. A lot of people would ask, don't you want to go back to your country? And I would often say like, can you call in my country? I have no idea what's happening there. People would say, yeah, but you have to find your identity. <laughs> and so I was like, um, yeah, sure, but I feel very Belgian. I'm from Bruges and my childhood memories are all from my life in Belgium. So then at the age of 18, I went from Bruges to Brussels, studied radio journalism. And I think in my last year, I had to make a documentary as one of the tests. And the topic was Fortress Europe. And they wanted us to find out how people had tried to find a way from outside Europe into Europe and start a new life and how hard it is to actually get accepted, get the paperwork done. So I, I tried to find some people and my documentary went in no direction. Didn't find the right people, didn't find the right topic. And one of my last chances, there was one interview that I still wanted to try and that was an interview with a guy from Ghana. I managed to convince him to come to my house to make an interview and to see if I could follow his life story. And as I prepare my recording set, he asked a question that so how long have you been living here was one that I had many, many times before. I live here for... But usually didn't want to answer, but he asked it in such a way that I thought, whoa, he has a point actually. So I live here for 18 years. Yeah. You were born here then? No. How old are you now? 20. 20? 20. Mm -hmm. 83? Oh, you came at the age of four years. Two, two years and two a half. Years. So before I actually can start the interview, he here. changes the roles and he starts to ask me questions and he asks, so where are you from? I'm adopted. And it's not that I haven't heard it before, but just the way he asked it, it was like, actually, who am I to like interview him? <laughs> And then I said, I don't know, you know, I live now in, here in Belgium, but yeah, no, no, where are you really from? Then I said, okay, I'm born in Rwanda. So have you been back? No, 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 I have no reason to go back. I'm an orphan, I have nobody, and my mother passed away, and my father is unknown. Ah, but wait, your father is unknown, but there are no secrets in Africa, so you should try to go back, and maybe even if your family is no longer there, your mom might have told to her best friend 
that she had a lover and then she got you. So you might actually be able to find out your father after all. So I thought, huh? Yeah, bullshit, probably. I didn't say it, I was thinking it. But these questions that he had, they opened something up inside me. So that's actually by accident that I got interested in trying to figure out what had happened before I got adopted. And then it became clear very soon that there was not enough papers in my adoption file, so I had to go to Rwanda. And it was true. There are no secrets. <laughs> I found my whole family back. So I now have 26 brothers and sisters. And if you count all the marriages and all the divorces and everything, then I have eight parents. The first trip back to Rwanda was, it was already a kind of miracle to find my whole family again because of what had happened in 1994, that everybody was still alive and healthy. But then there was so much more story still there, so I kept going back several times. I started to record a lot in East Africa and Rwanda in particular. And I think on one of my trips in 2005, I was on my way to the village of my mom. And as I'm walking towards the village, there is a messenger coming towards me and saying, your grandfather at your father's side, he's waiting for you and it's almost dark so you should hurry up so you can still see him because he needs to go back. So then I hurried up to see him, I saw him for maybe two or three minutes, took some pictures and then he left. And all I remember in that moment was a very old person waiting for me for some reason and then going back up the mountain to his house in darkness. So I was very grateful that he waited, it's a very honorable thing, but that didn't do anything with that until a few trips later and a few years later. I suggested to my father, can I see my grandfather who I saw maybe two minutes a few years ago? And my father would say, well, is that really necessary? <laughs> I said, yeah, I really want to see what my grandfather is like. And so at some point my father finally explained how to get to my grandfather. I reached there without knowing anything except for this image I had. There was no road there and it took me two hours to get there from the main road. That's an area with seven volcanoes in a row. And he lives in a place called the Virunga Mountains in um, the northern part of Rwanda and together with the Kilimanjaro, it's kind of the roof of the continent, it's pretty high. And as I arrived there and started talking, it was a really lovely time together. He's always very relaxed and very open-minded and very respectful and even if he doesn't know you, he shows so much love and dedication and I just wanted to figure out more about him. So I was there sitting with my grandfather and we were talking and at some point he disappeared and I asked one of the cousins that was helping me to translate, where's our grandfather? He said, ah, oh, he's in his garden. It's like, garden? I've never seen anyone here like talking about gardens. So yeah, yeah, like back there he has his garden and he's probably getting some plants. 
because he's a traditional doctor. Didn't you know our grandfather? He's 100. I said, what? <laughs> Is that possible? Is there anything else I need to know? Yeah, well, he's also one of the last traditional hunters. It's like, oh my God, this is too much. This is not possible. I was recording also our conversation, so I had to hold myself not to ruin the recording. My heart was just beating. Like Back then I was already in shock that someone could turn 100 with everything that they had experienced. Knowing that there has been a lot of conflict up till 15 years ago, you had the war in 1994, the genocide, and then you had the aftermath of that and his area. The most brutal stuff happened over there. And being a journalist, even if I don't work for the national radio anymore, it's still in my blood to collect stories. So that story, <laughs> I cannot just let it go. I need to know more. Mucus of nose, flowing Karisimbi lava, sinus of nose, killing a queen's lover. Noses grieving beneath a thousand hills, bleeding in tissues, held in the west, hated in the east, haunted in the north. Sadness in noses sinking, whispering at the shallowness of their sighs. Broken nose. So ever since then, I've tried to go back and record more stories and talk with him and try to figure out what he remembers. So I went to see him again just before he turned 109. And so that became a source of inspiration for the piece that I present here at CTM. Welcome called to Sogokuru by Orilini Rabikari Lirman, performed by But What About, commissioned and produced by CTM 2019, Deutschland Radio and ORF. Sogokuru is a performative installation with three-dimensional audio... Sogokuru means grandfather in Rwandan. When someone gets a certain age, they no longer use the name of this person. Quite often they will just say Sogokuru as a kind of honorable title because having a certain age has a lot of value in most African societies. In Europe, things tend to be more and more that Whatever youth and young people find important is becoming the main focus, but in African societies, the elder decides what happens. You can also check if left and right channel are correct. You can now hear my voice at your right, and now you can hear me left. And so with my grandfather, it's like looking into history books, but having a chance to, instead of reading about possible ancestors, I can look into the eyes of my, my grandfather and it's like I'm talking to a living archive. And have a nice listening experience. Because of colonization, it's very hard to find people who can relate to what was there before. And he's born around 1910. So he's seen all these phases from pre-colonial, then saw the transitions when the, um, Germany was then the ruling um, colonizer in that area.
Then, because of the end of the First World War, the Germans were no longer in rule, and Rwanda became part of Belgian colonies. The Belgians managed to end the monarchy, the thing that kept everything together in Rwandan society, in terms of constitution, everyday organizing, everyday life, and also um, spirituality and religion, the whole cosmology and the whole way people were understanding how the world should work was through the monarchy. So that was ended with all the uproar of the ending of the colonization towards the independency. That was up till the 60s. You had independence in 62, but just before you had a really brutal conflict in the 50s, so you had a sort of smaller genocide already. Some not so easy years between the 60s and the end of the 80s that led to the genocide. Then you had post-war, post-genocide, where a lot of violence was still happening. And then you had what we call now the Rwandan Renaissance, the current president managing to rebuild the country from the early 2000s onwards until now. But he's seen all those stages, so I just have to ask, how can someone yeah, experience all that? What does it do with a person to go through this whole century and see all the most important events that a Rwandan person could possibly experience? I'm really fascinated about how he used to live in this more pre-colonial environment. Now it's grassland, hilly and mountainous, but before it was dense forest, and he lived in and with the forest. So I'm curious about how do you communicate then? Obviously, you will not only be communicating with humans, you have to communicate with an environment which is natural, which is what we call non-human. It's a bit stupid to make these separations, but it's just because we live in the West and we are so disconnected. So I understood this is very hard to get clear, objective information about whatever you're experiencing in your life, your own biographic stuff. So I thought, well, the first element in communication is your ears, right? And I deal with sound. So let me explore just how our ears work and what kind of setup would work with really trying to properly understand how we use our ears. So I made a setup where I do a lot of binaural sound. So the space is used as an extra element. It's not just sound, but I deal with acoustics and really with binaural sound, not just stereo. So you get 3D audio all around you. You enter in a world where you're no longer just in this concert hall, that you just go in on a sort of uh, journey. The sounds you hear, I used we didn't have the instrument itself because it's hard to find these days, but we simulated it with a clarinet. This instrument is called ihembe. Ihembe is a sort of horn of antelope or okapi, and they make one hole in it and then they can blow in it, similar to the way we use the post horn, so to communicate. This was used for hunting people to gather together. They have a ritual before they enter the forests, and they also have rituals within the forest and after the forest. So I taught the musicians how to perform the music that might have been used in those rituals. Wow. 
This is an ode to my grandfather, being inspired by certain elements that I heard when we were having conversations or when I was just there around his house listening to the environments. So let's say that this is just one first thing, which is really an ode and a sort of happy birthday to my grandfather because I'm just so much in awe that he's managed to remain himself in such an easygoing way. He's an example for his environment. Yeah, to remain yourself in such a way, I find it just so incredible. So my grandfather experienced a kind of pre-colonial Rwandan environment in society that was pretty similar to before the Germans first entered here in Europe, we might have had similar lifestyle before the Industrial Revolution, maybe, or before the beginning of capitalism. But that's a long time ago, and so you don't have witnesses of that. So I'm really eager to find out how did your day look like? What kind of life did you have? What sounds did you have? What kind of smells? What kind of tastes? Anything, because it's extremely different from anything we know today. And how much is now still alive? I cannot imagine that everything has been actually wiped out. I think there's a parallel thing to it. And I think in the rural areas, they kind of have their own knowledge. I remember walking with one of my brothers and I got a small wound and it was bleeding on my knee and it's a remote area. For me, coming from the West, it looks like there is nothing except for, let's say, grass and plants and rocks. We sat down and he just looked around in the grass and he's like, oh, we just take that plant, we break it up, we rub it a bit, put it against the wound and it stops the bleeding and it will start to heal within a minute. The juice of the plant just starts to help to get the blood to clutter and to form a nice protection. So no bandage, nothing needed. Just put that against the wound and it's over. So they have that kind of knowledge and they need it. Because Rwanda has been and is still one of the poorest countries in the continent. It's very successful right now, but it's still very, very poor. And so people don't have the money to go to doctors and there are not enough Western doctors. And even if there's a hospital, you might have to wait a month or two months before you get help. If it's something serious, you're in danger, you can die. So um, apparently Rwanda is one of the countries where most of the people, 80% is still using that kind of knowledge and traditional medical support. You have this huge impact of colonization, and next to that, there are other rules applied for when you want to do jurisdiction, when you want to take revenge, where people try to get rid of each other when they have some jealousy going on or other motivations to do that. You have something that we would call white magic and black magic. It's not that simple and it's not that white and black, literally. But so you can use your knowledge about how the body works, knowledge about plants. You can use it in a good way. And that's what my grandfather does and has always done. And he's really, really upset with people that are doing witchcraft, in a, doing negative stuff.
my grandfather, even if they don't speak it out loud, that he has a great value of his knowledge, he has. Also, when I walk around and people ask me in the village, like, so why are you here? Uh, and then I explain afterwards that I come to visit my grandfather. Who is your grandfather? I just dropped the name and they were like, <gasps> whoa! <laughs> so then I always figure out, oh, I'm not the only one who is in love with my grandfather. <laughs> He's really well, well respected there. Um, and it's in a very humble way. He doesn't show off any of what he knows. He likes to help people. He doesn't ask any money for it, anything in return. If people can't pay, he has made a vow that he's there to help. That's it. People would walk 100 kilometers barefoot to find him and to get cured. And I've seen it now several times that I'm there that even if he's got a really hard time to walk, he goes to his garden with a lot of difficulty, tries to find the few plants that he can get there. He prepares it in front of us and then gives it to them. Before he would go up into the mountains and find all his material stuff there, all his plants, minerals. But now it's mainly stuff from his garden, and so that's probably way more limited. But he still is doing it at the age of 109. Keeps doing it. Before we finish, here are some quick credits and endnotes. The sounds you've heard throughout this program were all from works by Aurélie, from Yotamikro, Anosmia, and Kariaku. And, of course, an excerpt from her performance of Sugokuro at CTM. The full recording of the performance will be available from Deutschland Radio's website from March 22nd. Listening to The Lake.